0: Well, if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 16. We're going to be looking at verses 16 through 40 this morning. You can find it on page 925 there in the Pew Bibles. Uh, if you're just joining with us, we have been going quite, uh, for quite some time through the book of Acts because we want to see the triumph of the gospel over all things, Ultimately, that's why we decided to go through the book of Acts to look at it in detail. We want to see what God has done in making himself known as the gospel has extended from there beginning with this fledgling church at Jerusalem at Pentecost to reaching the very ends of the earth. We want to see God's glory being revealed in all of those ways, and so we've been working our way slowly through the book of Acts, and now we've come to Acts chapter 16, where we are now walking along with the Apostle Paul on his second missionary journey, as he takes the gospel into places where the name of Christ has never been heard, so that God would open the hearts of many, people from every tongue, tribe, and language to know the glory of Jesus Christ. And so far we've seen some amazing things. He's, as he's worked his way out, he's, he's gone through parts of what we know as the country Turkey, Through Phrygia and Galatia, he tried to preach the gospel in Asia, uh, Mysia, and Bithynia, but the Lord prevented him from doing that because God wanted him to take the gospel then into Macedonia, which is what we understand as modern day Greece. And if you look there at at chapter 11, again, it's page 925, we see that, so setting sail from Troas, we made our way, uh, a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Now, I bring this up because I think that more often than not, when we think about the triumph of the gospel, when we think about the power of gospel to save, this is the kind of situation that we think of where well, you've got these these guys and the, you know they're pretty put together they're they're really you know religious people they're zealous for the lord and god calls them out and they go into places where they find people who are already you know just pretty good pretty put together pretty religious already and they just kind of you know help them to get over the hump to god now now clearly this was the power of god this was the work of god to open Lydia's heart to hear and to receive the gospel but you know i mean yes she's basically got it together she's basically all right and so the gospel kind of comes in there we see the triumph of the gospel to take somebody who is religious and to make them a little better somebody who's basically good and to make them a little bit better somebody who's basically got their life all in order and to make them a little bit better but that is not me or that is not my family or that is not those people over here or that is not the people that I have to deal with every single day. And so sure, gospel triumphs in the life of people like Lydia, virtuous, well-together women or, or triumphs in, in the life of people like Paul. I mean, Paul's Paul, but not me, not for those people. Have you ever felt that way? Just read the Bible, and you read these stories of transformation, and, you know, all of these changes happening, you're just like, man, God, I, I don't know, that can't really be true, can it? I mean, God can't really save that person there. God, God really can't renew that area of culture. God really can't just you know, overcome evil in, in that capacity. You just see all the evil in the world. You, God can't really overcome and overwhelm that dull and apathetic heart. God can't help me in the midst of this affliction or that one. Have you ever felt that way? You see, I think it's easy for us to say that the gospel is triumphant. I think it's easy for us to even affirm what we read about in the pages of Scripture. Yep, God did that at that one point in time with those people over there, but that's not me. That's not these people. That's not us. That's not here. You see, it's another thing to truly believe that the gospel will be triumphant over our current situations, over the evil in our world, over the hearts of people that are enslaved by sin that we know, or people that are indifferent to the gospel altogether. And so thankfully for us, the Bible isn't filled with stories of people like Lydia, where they're all just kind of put together, just need a little help, getting over the hump to God, but, but instead we see God working in power from people from every walk of life, every, every background, every basically life. Status that you could imagine. That the gospel really is triumphant and God really can indeed save anyone. And God does that not by delivering people from every hardship, every difficulty, every challenge that life might present them, but through and in the midst of every trial they endure. The gospel is triumphant even in the face of persecution. And that's what we're going to see this morning from Acts chapter 16, verses 16 through 40. The gospel will triumph no matter what we endure. The gospel will triumph no matter what we endure. And so let's begin reading Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse 16. It's a longer passage, so you will be helped to have the Bible in front of you. It says, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this kept going, and she kept doing this for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when the owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews. And they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore their garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had been inflicted by many blows, they, were through, uh, they threw them into the prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely." Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundation of the prison was shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go, therefore come out and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates. And they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Now, friends, I hope that you can see from this passage that God clearly triumphs. The gospel clearly triumphs, triumphs over evil, over persecution over dull hearts. But that triumph does not make life easy for Paul or Silas. Instead, we see the righteous living by faith regardless of what they must endure. And yet through it all, the gospel prevails. And here we see the gospel's power in three ways. The gospel's power over evil, the gospel's power over persecution, and the gospel's power over dull hearts. And so first, the gospel's power over evil. Now, if the conversion of Lydia was about as normal as it gets when it comes to gospel ministry, the exorcism of this fortune-telling slave girl is about as abnormal as it gets, right? This is not the kind of thing that you would expect to see and neither did Paul and company. They were not planning on this. This is not what they were trying to do, right? They're, they're not going on a demon hunt here, okay? No, as servants of the Most High God, for many days they had returned to the very same place, this place of prayer where they had first met Lydia in order to proclaim the way of salvation. That's what they were doing. It was regular Consistent, predictable ministry of the Word of God in prayer. But as they would go day after day after day to this same place of prayer, this fortune telling slave girl, who Luke tells us had a spirit of divination, began to follow them and to cry out in the same way that demons would cry out when they came into the presence of Christ. We know who you are, Son of the Most High God. Have you come to torment us before the appointed time? And here they're saying, we know who you are, servants of the most high God who come proclaiming this way of salvation. And so over and over again, she would say this. Now she's speaking truth, but it's not a truth that she believes. Same same level of faith that demons have and shudder. She knows their true identity But her words actually are distorting and perverting the gospel, putting it in line with the mythology and the evil spirits of the day. You see, that word there, divination, is the word python. It's where we get our word python. Now, python in Greek mythology was a huge serpent or dragon that guarded the center of the earth until the day came when he got into a battle with his arch nemesis, Apollo, and Apollo slayed him. Because in Greek mythology, you know, you've got these demigods, and, they, and they're basically good, but they're kind of capricious. They're, they're a lot like you and me. They're flawed beings, but they're powerful, and they always have to have an arch enemy of some type. Well, that was Apollo and Python. So they, they fought this big battle. Python was killed, and so supposedly the battlefield where he was killed, that's where they, they built the temple at Delphi, and the priestesses who attended that temple in Delphi were called Pythia. And they were declared to have the ability to predict fortunes. Now, whether they could or not, we don't really know. But that's connected to our story when we think about who this girl is and the fact that Luke says that she has a spirit of divination. So according to Macedonian culture, which again is where they are, this slave girl was given the ability to tell fortunes by the power of Apollo or Python. But Paul recognizes That this is an evil spirit that was opposing the name of Christ. And though it was speaking partial truths, this evil spirit was actually perverting the gospel in three ways. First, though God is referred to as the Most High 54 times in Scripture, here in this pagan polytheistic culture in Philippi, the people could take that to mean that, oh yeah, he's the highest God, kind of like Zeus is the highest God among many, all of which are okay for me to worship. And so it's twisting and distorting rather than holding to there's one true and living God who made and sustains all things, who is holy, and we have all transgressed against him. And this one true and living God who is perfectly holy is our only hope for salvation. Second, this servant of Python is setting herself against the servants of the Most High, which would lead these people to think of that battle between Apollo and Python, therefore minimizing Jesus Christ as the perfect Son of God down to the level of a capricious demigod, distorting a right understanding of who Jesus is, why he came, and what it means to follow him. And a third issue Though Bible scholars have good reason for including the definite article, the Greek actually doesn't have it. So when it says that he were proclaiming the way of salvation, it was, it's actually a way of salvation. Now, the, I think Bible scholars have a good reason for including the definite article here, but I can't help but wonder if Luke was intentional to leave it out that this is actually what she was saying, a way of salvation, reducing the gospel down to a pluralistic worldview, one way of salvation among many. And so day after day after day after day, this Slave girl continued to heckle and to hound, to scoff and to mock, to scream out these words that would twist and distort the gospel message. And this would explain then why Paul got so annoyed, right? It says right there in verse 18, Paul, after having become greatly annoyed, I, I, that's, that gives us hope, right? Greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. A euphemism for the day that means right then, just came out, right then. Again, that word annoyed, it could mean deeply distressed, like have just provoked in our spirits, but it also could mean angry. And that, that gives me great hope as a weak pastor who's often annoyed and greatly perplexed and discouraged and dismayed and, and angered by things around me, though for much, much less righteous reasons. But friends, it's important to point out that Paul wasn't annoyed by the girl, but by the evil spirit that possessed her, by the gospel distortions that it was proclaiming. Now, I don't know about you, but yeah, I wondered to myself, okay, why why didn't Paul just cast out the demon immediately? He's got the ability to do that. Why why? allow for this to go on day after day after day? Why Why allow this demon to continue to torment her and, and to pester you? Why not just deal with it? Well, we don't know the condition of her heart. Perhaps she was in agreement with the spirit that possessed her. In fact, I think it's probably safer for us to presume that that's the case. You see, It's better to think of demon possession as a very strong influence rather than the whole levitating, head-spinning, pea-soup, vomiting depictions we get in movies today. A very strong uh, delusion or deception that leads people to do things that are not of themselves that they wouldn't do if they were in their right mind. Also, we have to remember that Paul's goal was to engage evangelize, establish, equip, and expand the mission. That's why he's there, to disciple, not to demon hunt. And so he wants to remain peaceably in Philippi for as long as possible in order to establish the church there. This evil spirit was the one trying to prevent that, to stir things up so that he has to respond and either gets thrown into prison or cast out of the city. But ultimately, and we can't miss this guys, ultimately this went on for many days in order to publicly prove that the gospel is triumphant over evil spirits. There is nothing, no one, no power, no rule, no dominion, no authority that can stand against God. And this slave girl who for years, maybe, maybe all of her life was under this controlling influence of this evil spirit, had been freed. She had been delivered from spiritual bondage. Now, we don't know for sure whether or not she became a believer because Luke's not as explicit as he was with Lydia in verses 13 through 15 or, or the, the Philippian jailer in verses 35 through 40. We don't really know whether or not she became a Christian, but generally in the New Testament, those who were freed by Christ followed Christ. And so the gospel is triumphant over evil spirits. But this demon is not the only evil that is overcome in this passage. The gospel is also triumphant over the evil in the culture. This girl was a slave who brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She was an object of profit. And yes, that's an intentional play on words just for you, Keith, right? Profit, object of profit, right? Profit and profit. So there you go, right? <laughs> and, and these people, they did not care what happened to her, what she declared, how her words affected the culture, just so long as they could gain from it and as long as the gospel doesn't affect their way of life they could care less what paul and and silas were saying so long as it doesn't impact them but once their hope of gain was gone we see in verse 19 they seized paul and silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers for the triumph of the gospel is the triumph of good over evil, of truth over falsehood, of righteousness over injustice, of freedom over impression, of oppression, of, of love and charity and compassion over pride and greed and self-interest. And what happened here was a good and glorious thing. This girl was freed from this evil spirit, but an evil and unbelieving culture did not care didn't matter to them. They were wowed by the miracle for like a second until they figured out what that meant for them. Their hope of gain was gone. Suddenly they took an issue with it. And Paul and Silas were grabbed and hauled before the courts. This glorious miracle that revealed the triumph of the gospel over evil did not result in the praise and adoration of Paul and Silas. It didn't make life easier for them. It actually resulted in them suffering for Christ. Because they were drugged before them, falsely condemned, stripped naked, beaten, and thrown into the darkest dungeon you can imagine in pain of stalks left there. That's what that miracle meant for them. The gospel is good news. But it is not good news to everyone. The gospel is not good news to the slave trade. The gospel is not good news to the porn industry. The gospel is not good news to abortion clinics. The gospel is not good news to crooked politicians or deceitful business owners. A culture that profits off of evil will not find the gospel to be good news unless God first does a work in their hearts. Friends, we're, we're not unrealistic about the gospel's renewal of culture. Sometimes people can feed you a real line about the redemptive aspects of the gospel on culture. People must first be saved before culture can be redeemed. That's why we don't put our hope in politics and elections. Because we can't just kind of hold it up a little bit. We've got to see the culture change. We've got to see hearts changed. Friends, we are not, when we take the gospel out there, we are not like little flower girls in a wedding, you know, that we got our little basket and, you know, we got our pretty little dress on and we're just kind of, we're flipping the the fragrant, beautiful rose petals out there and people are giggling because we're so cute and they're getting out their cameras and they're all all in eager anticipation because they know that what this means is that the bride is about to walk down the aisle and they're just so happy they think they're going to cry. It's not what we do when we take the gospel out there. The gospel is the fragrance of life to many. But to others, it is the fragrance of death. And they are grossly offended by it. And friends, if you, if you go out thinking with this mindset that if I just go out, people are going to love me and they're going to love Jesus and life is going to get better and better and better always. And, and that becomes your, your expectation and that becomes what you think is, is going to happen. What you're going to do is you're going to focus on aspects of our faith that our culture likes. And you're going to make those priorities. And you're going to leave out all the stuff that, that people don't like. You're not going to preach the whole gospel message. Oh, yeah, we can really focus on you know, bringing water to those who don't have clean water in Africa. That's a good thing. Good thing. But we're not going to talk about sin We're not going to talk about God's wrath. We're not going to talk about how the gospel makes demands upon your heart that you must be transformed to follow Christ and not your own ambitions. Now, we must preach the whole gospel. And when we do, for some, the gospel will be grossly offensive, the fragrance of death, because it exposes the darkness and evil, of the culture and in our hearts. And so they will hate it and they will hate you because of it. Which is why we see them beat and imprison Paul and Silas. Friends, we have got to know this. The gospel triumphing over evil, though amazing and glorious, might not be immediately pleasant. In fact, it might be painful, which is why, second, we need to see the gospel's power over persecution. This is not a fair trial. Paul would say later later in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 that they were shamefully mistreated in Philippi, and it was. I mean, look, in verse 19, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the public marketplace and and looking for the rulers. This is a shaming act. In verse 20, they falsely accused them. They accused them first for simply being Jewish. These men are Jews. Okay. Why is that a problem? Well, Because Jews were monotheistic. And in a polytheistic culture that profits off of the, the sale and exchange of multiple gods, the worship of multiple gods, that could be a problem. We see it would be later in Acts nineteen in Ephesus. They were disturbing the city. No, actually, the the evil spirit was the one disturbing the city, and Paul was actually bringing peace and order to the city by casting out this demon. You're just disturbed because your means of profit is gone. Verse twenty-one. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Well, why on earth is that? What? How do you make that accusation? Is, is it because Christianity was, not, was an unsanctioned religion by Rome? Is it, is it because they held to one God rather than many? Or was it because following Christ as Lord and Savior would mean uh, to lead Roman citizens away from exclusive loyalty to Caesar or the state or other gods? And without even hearing a word from Paul and Silas, without even finding out whether or not they were Roman citizens at all, we see that they drugged them before the magistrates. The crowd joined in attacking them. The magistrates humiliated them by tearing off their clothes and having them beaten severely with rods. And they threw them into the deepest, darkest dungeon, fastening their feet in stocks, which would have been painful as they sat there in utter darkness, bleeding. And what do Paul and Silas do? They pray and they sing. I just look at that and it's like, can can that be real? Can that honestly be the case? Why aren't they lamenting? Why aren't they crying out to God in anger? God, what are you going to do about this? Why aren't they desperate? Why aren't they discouraged and despairing? And friends, let me just say that I'm not quite sure that there wasn't a measure of that there. In fact, I'm quite quite sure that there was a measure of lamenting and deep concern in their hearts and on their minds and even on their lips. But yet, by praying and singing, it allowed them to focus on God, on His plan and purposes for the world, rather than... Than wallowing in fear and pain. It would redirect their hearts back to God and what He's doing rather than what they're feeling or what they're simply experiencing. It would enable them to encourage one another and to comfort one another, to build one another up. I I don't know if you've ever read the book Tortured for Christ by Richard Wormland. Richard Wormland was instrumental in the founding of Voice of Martyrs, which is a a group that seeks to inform Christians of of martyrdom and suffering and persecution throughout the world. Right? Well, Richard Wormland was a a Romanian pastor, and he and many Romanian Christians had to meet in secret. They were eventually caught and, and captured and imprisoned, and they were tortured repeatedly. And they often speak of how, had it not been for the fact that they were building one another up and encouraging one another with prayers and songs, and even when they just, the the pain was so intense that they lost sight of it completely, all they could do was say the name of Jesus. That was a sustaining voice for them in the midst of all of the pain and suffering that they endured. Friends, do you realize that that is why we gather together weekly? Weekly? in homes, why we meet together to encourage one another and build one another up? Do you realize that this is why we, we read the Word and we pray and we sing songs? It's not because this is our Christian duty. Because you, you profess faith in Christ, therefore you're obligated to be here. It's because these are the means that God has given us to strengthen us, to encourage us, to build us up and to build one another up so that we can remain faithful no matter what befalls us. Whether it be good or whether it be bad. That's why we're here. I hope that's why you're here. The word prayer, singing doctrinally rich hymns, that's not a duty. It's God's means of strengthening, sustaining, and growing us right where we are no matter what life throws our way. The strength that we gain from this account is not because Paul and Silas were perfect, because they were some kind of superhuman Christians, like super apostles that I can't even begin to to think like that without any fear or frustration, just sitting there in the dark all happy and clappy and smiling. The message is that God's grace and power was perfectly displayed in, for, and through them in the midst of their weakness and pain. The gospel triumphing over the darkness and over the pain and over the injustice and the humiliation of it all. That is what joy is. You've got to get this, right? Joy is not some peaceful, easy feeling. I'm just happy in Jesus all the time, and I can't wait to sing and to skip and to frolic. Joy is found when we stop looking to ourselves and to our circumstances and we start looking to Christ, to his humiliation, to his suffering, his death, to his resurrection, and his exaltation to glory. Joy is not the absence of pain, sadness, or hurt, or the presence of a skip and a smile. Joy is the delightful confidence in the triune God who orchestrated, accomplished, and applied our salvation. read that this week on Facebook, of all things. Can't write off Facebook yet. God's people respond to God's character and God's actions joyfully. Joy is an inward affection that finds its outward expression in praise and adoration and song regardless of feelings or circumstances because God and His ways, God's nature, God's character, God's purposes, God's promises are undeniably true and will result in good for you and for His ultimate glory no matter what tears flow from your eyes. That's true even if I'm in pain and even if I'm surrounded by utter darkness. We find joy in the face of persecution as we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. We remember this, his suffering, in his humiliation at the hands of sinful men, so that we will not grow weary or faint-hearted when we find ourselves in a similar position. And friends, we see the impact of their faith, of their joy, of their mutual comfort, and what that had on others, in verse 25, it says the prisoners were listening to them. Look at the mercy of God. Mercy of God took the persecution of Paul and Silas and worked it together for good because the gospel had now penetrated into the deepest and darkest and uttermost depths of a prison to the most hardened and miserable sinners, prisoners that you could find. God worked that together for good. How would they have heard the gospel if Paul and Silas had not been thrown into that prison praying and singing? Again, we see the gospel triumph. Friends, I know this is hard, but do not lament your pain. Do not lament your grief. Do not lament your hardships and sufferings because you don't know how God is using that. You don't know what God's going to do with that for the good of other people. Gives us great hope. That we can comfort one another in the midst of our affliction. And that God can use our affliction to yield good, to yield glory, to yield life for those who do not know him. Who are enslaved in absolute, utter misery and despair. Now before we move away from the gospel's power over persecution, I want to go ahead and look down at verses 35 through 40. It says, but when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. Now, we don't know why they came to this decision the next day. Perhaps they came to their senses and they realized, you know what? That was really unfair. That was an unfair trial. We can't do this. We got to let them go. Or, or maybe that was their intention the whole time, right? Just like, hey, we want these troublemaking Jews out of here. And so what we're going to do is we're going to throw them into the worst possible place we can imagine. And then they're going to want to get out of Dodge, It's possible that they came to the senses that, well, these are Roman citizens, but, you know, verse 39, I think it is, kind of makes that seem unlikely that they came to the realization that Paul and Silas were were Roman citizens, though they were Jews. This is why Timothy and Luke didn't end up in prison with them. Or perhaps they were scared by the earthquake, and they, they heard of the opening of the prison doors, and they just wanted all of these uncomfortable miracles to go away. It's like, look, this guy's been here for days and you've got this, this girl and you know, they're exercising demons and they put them in prison and the very foundations shake and the doors open and the chains fall off. I'm like, let's just get this guy out of here. We don't really know. But verse 36, the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out and go in peace. Now, I look at that as a green light to as quickly and quietly get out of dodge as possible. But Paul does something completely different. Well, he says, Paul says to them, look, they've beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And, and do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. And the police report these words to the magistrates and they were all afraid, like even more afraid because now they know they're Roman citizens. And so they came and they apologized to them. They apologized. And they took them out and they asked them to leave the city. I mean, could you imagine that? We talk about the gall of Paul. Like that's chutzpah, you know, like, man, what's that guy doing? Now, Paul was concerned about his rights as a citizen. That was clearly part of it, but I don't think that his primary goal was to hold to his sense of entitlement. Well, I'm a Roman citizen, and I demand your respect, and I demand your apology, and I demand you give me my money back. No, I think that Paul's actually falling on his sword here in order to protect the Philippian jailer and his family and the fledgling church at Philippi. You see, if this just disappeared, as soon as they got Paul and Silas to walk out of the city, they might have turned and looked right at that Philippian jailer and said, okay, now we're going to deal with you. So what were you doing letting this happen? Or they might have turned then to the, the church there at Philippi and said, well, we got rid of your leaders, so now it's your turn. But instead... Because Paul and Silas required the magistrates to publicly repent of their crimes against them, that would hopefully cause them to think twice before acting so harshly towards other Christians. I also think this is why we see Paul complying with their request and leaving Philippi in verse 40, because he doesn't want to make things more difficult for the brand new believers there. And so they went out of the prison, they visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. You see, it's not really about Paul at all. It's about the good of others. But I think that there's another reason why Paul required a public recognition of this shameful treatment. And it was to make sure that no shame came upon the gospel. You see, if these gospel messengers were mistreated in this way and then they just disappeared without a formal recognition, then the people of Philippi might think negatively of the gospel. They might believe it and and its messengers deserve this kind of treatment. But Paul does not want to bring even a hint of reproach upon the name of Christ. You see, it's not about him. It's about making Christ first in all things, about Christ's preeminence, about Christ's glory, about Christ's perfections. And I want them to see that. That's why I've done nothing wrong, not ultimately because I'm so great, but because he is. And so Paul stood firm, not for his own sake, but for Christ. And in doing that, the gospel was shown to be triumphant even over these careless magistrates. And so we've seen the gospel's power over evil, the gospel's power over persecution. Now let's see the gospel's power over our greatest adversary. Third, the gospel's power over dull hearts. The jailer could care less who Paul and Silas were, nor what they had done. It did not matter. He was simply doing his job. Verse 24: having received his orders, without any question, he immediately complied, putting them in the inner prison, fastening their feet in the stocks. Didn't matter how rough that was. Not even a question. Hey, what did they do to deserve this kind of harsh treatment? Nothing, right? He could care less that they were praying and singing hymns through the night. Though the other prisoners were listening as they were doing these things, what was the Philippian jailer doing? Verse 27, he was sleeping. This gives me hope for all of you with heavy eyes this morning and every other Sunday morning. If God can save the Philippian jailer, then God can save you as well. Just kidding. Honestly, though startled awake by the sudden earthquake, he could care less about the tremor or even the fact that the doors were open only about his job. He pulled his sword and was about to kill himself because he supposed that the prisoners had escaped and it was better that he take this upon himself and do it quickly rather than to to leave himself in the hands of his commanding officers who might do it much more painfully. Now, this man could honestly care less until he heard the voice of Paul. Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And suddenly... This all came crashing down, right? The intensity of the earthquake, the fact that Paul and Silas had been praying and singing the gospel from their chains, the unbelievable detail that all of these prisoners could have escaped, they could have even potentially killed him on their way out, but yet they're all present and accounted for. How do you convince them of that? And he's trembling in fear because he has just been confronted by the power of the gospel and he does not know what to do. And so he fell down before Paul and Silas and he begged them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? You ever think about how interesting that question was? Why didn't he run in and just say, what just happened here? Why are you guys still here? He asked the question, what must I do to be saved? Why would he ask that question? Friends, asking that question is halfway to becoming a Christian. In fact, I don't know how you can become a Christian without first asking that question. This is a desperate recognition that you need salvation, and you don't know what, if anything, that you can do about it. And here's the thing, maybe some of you are here this morning, and that's the question that the Lord has laid on your heart. What must I do to be saved? Honestly, it's it's an important question. It's a question you need to answer or need to have answered. The scariest thing is for you to be here, you to go through life, you to hear the gospel, to hear the prayers of the saints. Sing along with the songs on the screen and to never think to yourself, what must I do to be saved? At that point, it doesn't matter how good an evangelist you might be, you can share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them all day long and they might be polite, they might give you a, a, a nice, silent, polite head nod, but inwardly they could care less because they do not think they need to be saved. No, I'm okay. Pretty much got things together. You know, I'm just doing my job, basically, a good person, trying to contribute to the betterment of society in my small little way, you know. Just pretty much got things together. I might go to a worship service a time or two, you know, because friends ask me to come along and, you know, I want to be a friend to them. But uh, I don't really see the need. I imagine that if there's a God out there that, uh, you know, he's really not all that demanding and he's probably just okay with me, right? I, I'm not the best person out there, but I'm certainly not the worst. There's a whole lot worse than me. And as long as I stay away from the really, really bad stuff, then, you know, I'm fine. Or even if I do commit the bad stuff, basically all I really need to do is say I'm sorry and, you know, I'll be all right. But I don't need to be saved. Now, I might be fine for you. That might be what works for you, but... You know, I'm okay basically the way that I am. And many go through life just like that. Dull and indifferent toward their true need of salvation. Just thinking, man, I don't really need it. It doesn't really matter. I I don't really care. But friends, if that's you at all this morning, I've just got to ask you, are you so found that you don't need to be saved? you think that you're so wise, so smart, so intelligent, so put together that you don't need the grace of God to open your eyes and ears and mind and heart to receive the gospel? Do you honestly think that you're so good that you don't need forgiveness? That you've got it all together enough that you don't need God's help? That your life is just so great and so good and so together and so full that you don't need a resurrection? Friends, some of you need to be asking that question. What must I do to be saved? But you know, through the course of days, from the time where this slave girl started crying out, up until that sudden earthquake in the early morning hours, this jailer had heard enough of the contours of the gospel. There had been enough sort of seeds that were starting to be sown, and, and he was able to see the joy of these Christians as they prayed and sang, despite their shameful treatment, to know that he was not okay. That he desperately needed salvation. And just like the good woman Lydia, God was opening his heart to pay attention to what Paul had said. And in God's power, he uses the praise and respectable behavior of these persecuted Christians. Again, you, you don't know what they're seeing or what they're hearing. Even among the most hard-hearted and callous people. And God in his power was using the crisis of this sudden earthquake to wake this jailer's dull heart to his greatest need. You see, God had brought him to the end of himself. And he asked that question, what must I do be saved. The answer is to believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your whole household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. They spoke the word of how the the perfect son of God came and took on flesh and lived a perfect life, a life of obedience to all God's laws, the kind of life that you and I, we can never ever live. And God gave up that life by dying on a cross for sin. To pay the penalty that sin deserved. By his blood, he had covered God's wrath. God, He rose three days later to prove that he was indeed God's son. That he was indeed Lord, worthy of all glory and admiration. That he had indeed covered God's wrath against sin. The power of sin and death was defeated. And that all who repent of their sin and believe in him, who call upon his name and follow after him in faith... Will Will be reconciled to God forever to live with Him in His glory. And so, as they spoke the word of the Lord to Him and to His household, God opened their hearts to receive the gospel. Gospel being triumphant over many dull hearts. Is the Lord opening your heart this morning to believe in the Lord Jesus? That's ultimately the question for you. And friends, this is more than an intellectual assent. simply professing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, saying that you believe that something is true because immediately their hearts were changed. This jailer went from, a, from callously incarcerating Paul and Silas to a crisis of faith, to verse 33, and he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he baptized, he was baptized at once, he and all his family, and he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Friends, he went from could care less to couldn't care more from he, cleaning their wounds, publicly professing his faith in Christ and his desire to follow Jesus in all things through baptism, feeding them, rejoicing along with his whole household because his faith, by God's grace, led to their faith. He wasn't simply a Christian because he said that he believed, but because the gospel had triumphed over his dull heart Jesus was now his Lord, not Caesar, not the state, not his job, not his reputation, not his family, not his comfort or his pleasure. He believed Jesus is Lord and Savior, and it changed him. As A.W. Tozer once said, if your profession of faith means nothing to you, it's a safe bet that it means nothing to God either. You might not have a crisis of faith like this jailer did as a result of this earthquake. Your salvation might look much more like Lydia's did. But every single one of us must go from this deep Recognition that we desperately need salvation, and there is nothing that we can do to save ourselves from our evil, unbelieving hearts, knowing that we deserve God's eternal wrath because of our sin, and there's nothing that we can do about it. To God opening up our hearts to believe that Jesus is Lord, and that changes everything not perfectly, not immediately, but truly in ways that are evident in our lives, in what we now care for. It wasn't the fact that this jailer washed their wounds that saved him, but the fact that God had washed away his sin and his act of kindness was a fruit of that. It wasn't that he went through the spiritual ritual of baptism and that saved him because God had already baptized him with the Holy Spirit and he wanted to display that publicly, his desire to obey the Lord Jesus Christ in all things. And so his baptism is evidence of that. It wasn't the fact that he fed prisoners or that he invited the outcast into his home that saved him, but the fact that God had welcomed him. That God had shown his love for him while he was still a sinner. And that God fed his soul through his word. His act of hospitality was an overflow of that. It wasn't because he rejoiced along with his believing household that made him right before God. But that God had made him right through the blood of Christ. And as a result of that, he rejoiced. He believed in the Lord Jesus, not some Jesus of my own choosing, some Jesus of my imagination, some Jesus of liberal, critical scholarship, some popular, you know, wayward, do-gooder Jesus that you might hear about. He believed in the Lord Jesus, as did his whole household, and they were saved. The gospel triumphing not just over his, but over many dull hearts. And I pray that the gospel would triumph over every single heart in this room. It doesn't matter how old you are, how long you've been a Christian, how wise or mature you consider yourself to be. They're all areas of, of our own lives and our hearts where the gospel needs to pervade. And overcome dullness and apathy. The gospel will triumph. No matter what we endure. It will triumph over evil. It will triumph over persecution. It will triumph over dull hearts. But friends, that does not mean that life will be easy for those who follow Christ. Christ. There are two miracles that God worked in this text. He amazingly saved this girl from possession of this evil spirit. But it resulted in intense suffering for Paul and Silas. It didn't make their lives better. They were humiliated, beaten, and imprisoned. Sure, the prisoners, they heard the gospel as they prayed and sang in the midst of their darkness and chains. God provides a second miracle in shaking the very foundations of the prison so that the doors came open and the chains fell off. But God did that work to deliver not Paul and Silas, but the Philippian jailer and his family. It was not for them. And what it would result in was them going back into the prison, them being set back before the magistrates, and them having to leave Philippi. Which is not what they wanted to do. They returned to that prison to protect the jailer's family, to protect the church, and to vindicate the gospel. And no matter what they endured, we see that the gospel triumphs. Their suffering resulted in glory for those who were being saved. And it was a miracle. And Paul says this often. He said it in Ephesians when we looked at it a few years ago. My suffering is for your glory. It's for your glory, not mine. Now, how could he say that? He says it because we have already received all the glories in heaven in Christ Jesus They're all ours already. There's nothing that this world could add to or take away from that. And so I got nothing to gain in it, but you have much to gain. And so he could say that, "I'm, I'm willing to suffer for your glory because I have already triumphed in Christ. God's grace can do that because the gospel has triumphed in our hearts and we have already been given all the glories of heaven in Christ Jesus. Friends, it is because the gospel has triumphed that we will endure. You may think of that as an impossibility this morning. I'm ready to quit and give up. It's because the gospel has triumphed that you will endure. Not because of anything that you do. but Because of what he does. What he has done. What he will do. What he will bring to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. And so just because life is hard or things do not go as you have planned them to go. Or just because you are experiencing pain and darkness... This is not an indication that the gospel has no power. In fact, it is quite to the contrary. Sowing while weeping is also evidence of the gospel's power. And so take heart. The gospel will triumph no matter what we endure. Let's pray.